Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yeah, we're here every Saturday around about midday um, after the fanfare to the common man. That's our call sign. Um, and this week we have a very full program for you. We have the Dogs Program is turning into the long form essay format because there's been a fascinating article written just recently by Joanne Barkham, um, originally for the uh, Washington Post. It relates to an overview of what's going on in the United States under Donald Trump and and why America has ended up where it has, how Donald Trump is, in fact, in the educational context. In education, they're following mm. Australia, unfortunately. Yes. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is, there's, there's a natural progression on it. And um, here at the Dogs, we like to analyse these things rather than looking at what happened yesterday and maybe what might happen tomorrow. We're interested in, in where this sits um, in the framework of the 20th and now the 21st century. Um, Jim will be introducing this fascinating long-form essay and we'll be exam- examining it in detail. But, of course, we always have our great state school of the week here, so we'll be finishing off on a high note because the kids and teachers out at Hume Secondary College should be congratulated, and I think they're, gonna, they're about to be congratulated on air out there at Broadmeadows doing a f- wonderful, fascinatingly wonderful job out there at Hume Secondary School. But before we go any further, welcome again to the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. And um, I'd like to pass over after these messages to to Jean, who will be introducing this fascinating article by Joanne Barkham. This is Matt from Burning Vinyl, Friday afternoons between 2 and 4, here on 3CR to let you know about a benefit for Burning Vinyl. It takes place on Tuesday the 26th of June at the Old Bar on Johnson Street in Fitzroy. Four great bands, Claws and Organs, Bodies, Noughts and Claire Birchall. Know that you're supporting a semi-decent radio program. Burning Vinyl. Four great bands at the Old Bar Tuesday the 26th of June. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. Good afternoon, listeners. Uh, this is our press release, which is on our website at www.adogs.info. What and who are fueling the movement to privatise public education and why you should care? Dogs seek, seek to both fight for public education and inform our listeners and supporters. Current problems confronting supporters of public education are very closely related. There's two of them. The first one is diversion of scarce public funding to a private religious system or systems, and this has combined with the belief that a mythical market, with its invisible hand and privatisation, with its more visible multinational corporations, will solve all our economic and educational problems. 
Well, this ideology only solves problems for a new, corrupt oligarchy that evades taxation for the common good and creates problems for the rest of us. And the ideology has also magnified inequality in education and caused social dislocation. And anyone who's been around since Thatcherism and Reaganism of the 1980s has watched this happen. Now, Australia is further down the track of privatisation of education than our American counterparts. But under the current Trump administration, with Betty DeVos as the Education Secretary, supporters of public education in that country have been delivered a very rude shock, and they're catching up to Australia fast. Many state legislatures are helping DeVos with programs using taxpayer funds to fund private and religious education. And uh, until uh, the Trump administration, this hasn't been the case uh, to anything like the stage that it has reached in Australia. Now, supporters of America's public education system are concerned about what they say is an assault on the most important civic institution in the country. The following, and Robert will be dealing with it, is a very important article in the Washington Post by the author Joanne Barkin. And it's about the history of the movement to privatise United States public schools, which is now at the heart of the national debate about the future of publicly funded education in both that country and this. Dogs have reproduced it on our website so that you can read it for yourself. In this article, Barkin explains the history and current state of the privatisation movement and what might lie ahead for the education system in the United States. Uh, She's based in New York City, this is who she is, and also in Massachusetts. And her recent writing has focused on market-based public education reform in the United States. It's not reform, it's deform. And she also writes about the intervention of private foundations in public policy, which in Australia we know as the donations uh, controversy, and the relationship between philanthropy and democracy. Should education be a charity? We believe, the dogs, that it should be a right for every child in a democracy. An earlier version of the article was included in the State Business and Education, which was edited by Jita Steiner, KMZ, and Alexandra Draxler in London. So at this point, I will pass it over to Robert. Uh, I'd also like to add that we have included a list of the references at the end of the article um, because people may wish to do further research on this. But over to Robert. No, if you do want to do further research, please feel free to um, do that research because it will be available on our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. Now, it's fascinating, this context. The American context and the Australian context um, have fundamental differences but also fundamental similarities. In the 19th century, the process of education began as a series of private ventures, either privately run by churches or privately run by philanthropists or privately run by, indeed, proto-corporations who wished to make money out of the process of educating uh, the children of the 19th century. For profit. For profit, indeed. Although, of course, churches making profits, that's a separate question. But the 19th century saw a movement in Australia, saw a movement in America, saw a movement in Europe to take the process of education as a, as a value, as something that is too valuable to, be, to, to suffer the whims of market forces. The process of educating the population of a nation was considered to be a nation-building exercise. And so government school systems, state school systems, countries took charge of their education systems in the 19th century because they perceived the value to every person in the country or the group or the city or the town, the, the value for everyone to get the maximum education into every child and therefore every adult. The 20th century... Um, the, towards the end of the 20th century, particularly here in Australia, but also in America and Europe, saw these reforms, which had lasted over 100 years, being wound back. 
And the article which we'll be discussing um, on the DOGS program in depth is about this movement. It's about the reprivatisation of knowledge, the reprivatisation of the transfer of knowledge into the minds of the children of a nation or a city or a town or even indeed a school. Um, and the rhetoric that's used and the fight that's on both here in Australia and indeed in the United States, which is where we'll be focusing our program on today. But in Australia, there's, there's just this fascinating process um, of this idea that education is not a right. Education is a sort of charitable benefit. It's like going to the Salvation Army to get your food package. Education has a similar status among certain groups within Australian society, within Australian society. And this can be no more, no more obviously pointed out in a really interesting article, I think, in the A's that came out just a couple of days ago, written by Michael Cosion. Because the independent school system and the Catholic school system both of which can combine educate about 30% of the population of Australia, are screaming and shouting at each other. They want taxpayers' money, more taxpayers' money than the other side. The Catholics are screaming that the independent schools get too much. The independent schools are screaming that the Catholics have had a special deal in Australia. They're screaming, and nobody, nobody in this debate has the slightest interest in over 60% of the population which go to state schools. They, in this debate, can go to hell, literally, in a handbasket. No one in this debate is discussing the state school. It's as though they don't exist in the debate between the independents and the Catholic school systems here in Australia. And the way this whole process of the majority of the population being completely ignored and these two people screaming at the government that they deserve this money or they deserve that money is, is fascinating. In fact, at the moment, there is a reform coming up in Australia that your income tax return will, will be one of the things that is used to decide how much the private school you send your child to gets well, well that, from the government. Will that return relate to the amount of tax that wealthy people who send their children to, tax, to um, private schools actually pay or their taxable income or their income before tax? Uh, Nobody is actually talking about this because the wealthy pay, in fact, very little tax if they have the right accountant. Indeed. The progressive tax system in this country is almost um, on its knees. It's um, in real trouble. And now, of course, that the, uh, the, the coalition are going to have their way, thanks to Pauline Hanson with the new tax law, uh, then you can say that the progressive tax system in Australia is almost dead. Indeed, but in the context of the tax system of Australia, that everything Jean says is true. But more specifically, I'm talking about the ideas that are being put forward by the advocates for this free market of education. Specifically, in this debate between the Catholic school system and the independent school system about who should get more money from the government to educate the children in their selective and indeed discriminatory education systems, the argument that the Catholic schools put forward is this. They argue that Catholic schools are disadvantaged because parents in wealthier neighbourhoods who send their children to a more affordable Catholic schools are counted as rich, whereas, in fact, just because they happen to live in a particular area doesn't mean that they are the rich people who live in that area. This argument, for me, is deeply offensive to the people who send their children to state schools. These are the people who can't afford a private school in any case, often, not always, Often very wealthy people will very sensibly send their children to state schools because they know they'll get a better education. But there are people who the idea of sending their child to a private school is, is, is something that wouldn't, they, they couldn't afford it and they don't want to do it. They're not taking part in this debate. We have the Catholic school system saying we have all the poor students, ignoring the poorest Australians because statistically Catholic, Catholic schools do not, do not in anywhere near the same rates. Um, educate children from poorer households. And when we talk about the great state school that's out of Broadmeadows, the Hume Central School, we'll be talking about a school that's doing magnificent things with the poorest, well, with children from the poorest families in Australia. Absolutely magnificent. But 
Coming back to the original ideas that Jane was talking about, and they're powerful ideas, the ideas of the free market and this history of what's actually going on with the free market in America when it comes to education. I think we'll have a little bit of music before we return to this, to this powerful essay written by Joanne Barkin. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We have a particularly interesting, I think, episode here today on 3CR 855 on the AM dial of the Dogs Program because it relates to the words of Joanne Barkin. And she's done an analysis of the story. It's a story of privatisation of public education in the United States of America, specifically under Trump and now Betsy DeVos, who's the Education Secretary. She says that when champions of market-based reforms in the United States look at public education, they see two separate activities. Firstly, the government funding education, and secondly, governments running schools. Now, the first is okay with them. The second is not. These reformers want to replace their bête noire, what they call the monopoly of government-run schools, with what they call freedom of choice in a competitive market dominated by privately-run schools that get government subsidies. Public funding, private management. These four words sum up American-style privatisation, whether it's applied to airports or prisons or elementary and secondary schools. In America in the last 20 years, the Ed Reform Movement has assembled a mixed bag of players and policies, complicated by alliances of convenience and half-hidden agendas. Donald Trump's election and his choice of zealot privatiser Betsy DeVos as the US Secretary of Education bolstered the reformers, but has also made Americans more wary. Now, in this essay, we'll be discussing this controversial movement. Where did it come from? How did it grow? And what, is actually, and what has it actually done so far to a nation that's deeply divided by race 
and the class. Now, in the latter decades of the 19th century, consensus grew around an expansive vision of education in which government plays a far-reaching role. Schooling should be government-funded and administered, it should be universal, and it should be compulsory to a certain age in the United States. Now, in the States, there was an increasingly industrialised and it was increasingly home to new immigrants, new citizens expecting public schools to accomplish a great deal, including in part general knowledge and practical skills to prepare young people psychologically and socially for self-sufficient adult lives, to educate for a democratic citizenship, to unify a diverse population, to create opportunity, opportunity for upward mobility. Over time, many Americans came to regard public education as one of the mainstays of democracy itself. Now, the US Constitution makes no mention of education, so the federal government had to specifically play a role. Since the earliest days of the Republic in the United States, local and state authorities shaped elementary and secondary public education. Racial segregation in schools, which became the law in 17 states and the norm almost everywhere else there, was also a local and state matter. This did not change until 1954, when the US Supreme Court ruled that racially segregated public schools were inherently unequal and therefore unconstitutional. The Brown case, it took a long time to get to the Brown case, but it actually was in the Constitution. Uh, we have a very important right in our Constitution, which is the religious freedom right in Section 116. To date, our High Court doesn't understand it. It took that time in the United States to get there. Hopefully, we might get there eventually too freedom of conscience, but it has uh, implications and it had implications in the end in the uh, American story. Mm. So, with this question of race, things shifted, things changed. When the federal government stepped in to enforce the Brown um, case, enforce school desegregation, it met with fierce resistance. Oh, yes. After several years of minimal progress, federal authorities resorted to court-ordered desegregation plans, which they imposed on school districts across the states, not just in the South. For the first time, government at the highest level assumed a significant role in kindergarten to year 12 schooling, just for the first time. In the mid-60s and the 70s, the federal role expanded to include protecting the civil rights of all students and offering financial assistance to public schools with a high percentage of low-income students. In the 1980s, the political climate shifted. In an international renaissance of laissez-faire economics, updated now these days, it's described as neoliberalism, and this challenged the dominant Keynesian model of regulated markets. Governments around the world, not just in the States, began to act on a suite of neoliberal principles. In Australia, it was Hawke and Keating. In the, in the States, it was Reagan. The idea was that competition and choice in a free market are the best organising principles for most human activity because they produce the greater efficiency and the higher quality. The role of government is to provide a framework that allows the market to function freely. Most other government activity merely clogs the system with bureaucracy and special interests. Ruling elites believe that the implementing of these principles would solve the problems of high inflation, stagnation, unemployment, low productivity, and everything, whatever else was ailing a country or indeed an economy. There was a whole generation, a bit more, since the Second World War, which was about fighting fascism. And fascism actually was about big corporations running the government. So we're well on the way back to it, aren't we? Indeed. Now, neoliberalism in the 80s led logically to specific policies such as cut taxes and government spending, deregulate the economy, to transfer as much government activity as possible to the private sector, including education. And when government funding is necessarily to get something done, turn management of the getting it done over to the private sector. Now the ideological shift to neoliberalism was rapid and widespread in the United States. This was the age of Thatcher and Reagan, two world leaders who aimed to revolutionise economic policy at home and indeed abroad. Governments around the world embraced austerity, deregulation and privatisation. I was alive then, I know this is true. 
Consider, for example, some of the major nationalised industries that were privatised in the 1980s. British Telecom, the Spanish car manufacturing companies, New Zealand Steel, Japanese National Railways, Air Canada, the Commonwealth Bank here in Australia, and many, many others. And look at the problems that we're now got in Australia with the Commonwealth Bank, the State Bank, or the State Banks, which are now called something else, and Telstra. We can't even be certain that we're going to be able to dial triple zero if somebody has a heart attack. That's where we're at. Indeed, indeed. We'll be returning with more of this and discussing indeed in detail um, how this neoliberalism applies to education in the United States from the 80s until today, after these. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 94198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 94198377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Now we come to the point in America's educational history where we get to talk about Milton Freeman. Oh. One of neoliberalism's major thinkers and its most successful popularizer. He actually advised Reagan during the presidential campaign in the 80s and joined his Economic Policy Advisory Board in 1981. That's what Milton Freeman did. On education policy, Freeman never deviated from the model he presented way back in 1955, which was entitled The Role of Government in Education. Now, this is what he said. He said that government should get out of the business of running schools altogether. Indeed, it should fund a voucher worth the same amount of money for every school-aged child to use at his or her choice of private school. For Friedman, the choice would include private for-profit schools, private non-profit schools, religious schools, and even some run by the government themselves, but for-profit. A democratic society, he reasoned, requires a minimum degree of literacy and knowledge on the part of most citizens. Hence, government had a legitimate interest in requiring and paying for what the community decided will be the necessary minimum amount of education. What would he have thought about uh, Mr Turnbull's aspirational parents, then, I wonder, since citizens only require a minimum amount of education, elementary? Yes, well... I wonder. I I have no idea. He's dead, thank Mm, goodness. Um, But government-running schools, according to him, was not justifiable government shouldn't run schools, it's not justifiable in its own right, in a predominantly free enterprise society. Not a free society, a free enterprise society. Fascinating words. Trickle up or trickle down? In the marketise system that he proposed, competition would theoretically eliminate low-performing schools because they wouldn't attract enough customers to stay in business. In the real world, of course, the poor buy necessities at a price they can afford, even if the quality is inferior. This is why the free market has always failed to meet the needs of low-income people. In any sphere, in any field, they get what they pay for. They get what they can afford. Now, in a school voucher system, wealthy families can and will add as much money as they want to the vouchers and pay for the choice of schools. Middle-income families will pull together whatever resources they can for the best schools in their price range. Low-income families, without additional resources, will, inverted commas, choose schools, 
changing, or charging the value of the voucher and no more. Also, no higher quality schools will be available because they will have no incentive except altruism to offer their products at a minimum price. I'm going to say that again. That's, that's, this is one of the keys to it. No high quality school will be available because, for poor people because they will have no incentive except for altruism to offer their product at a minimum price. For example, the value of a government voucher for a high school in Washington, D.C. in 2017 was 12,679 American dollars. There's that magic number I keep coming up with, about 13,000. It's true in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as well. While tuition at one, Washington's elite private school is $40,000 a year. So the voucher is a bit over 12. The price to get into the elite is 40. As a last resort, low-income families choose what they call a government school in this, in this system. For free market ideologues, government schools are always the last resort and available exclusively to the poor. Until they then say, well, why have them at all? Now, backtracking because there moment. isn't the money to pay for them in so, the first place. Backtracking just for a moment, many southern states anticipated the 1954 Brown School desegregation decision and prepared policies to evade racial integration. Between 1954 and 1959, eight states in the South of America adopted what were whites-only versions of Freedmen's voucher system. They used public funds to pay for white students to attend all-white private schools, which were then called freedom of choice schools, or segregation academies. I'm just going to say that again, because we hear the argument in Australia about freedom of choice being a good thing. These schools in the South of America were called, these, these racist schools, these whites-only schools, were called freedom of choice schools. Now, in the States, in these States, they also leased unused public school property to create private schools. Shortly before publication of his 1955 essay, Friedman added a footnote to address the segregationist version of, essentially, his own Friedman-esque proposal. Friedman argued that both forced segregation and forced non-segregation were evil. His solution for the South and everywhere else was publicly funded vouchers used for exclusively white schools, exclusively coloured schools and mixed schools. Parents could then have the freedom to choose to be racists. I should, I should, I should not um, uh, paraphrase what was actually written. Parents can be choose to, to, to which school to send their child to. Now, Freeman's essay prefigured the indifference of today's pro-market reformers to racial segregation in education, as long as the trade-off is private schools. The essay still functions as a touchstone for modern-day reformers. Now, education policy advisors back in the 80s in Reagan's administration hoped to wean Americans off public schools while also weakening the teachers' unions in the United States, which were a significant source of power for, in those days, the Democratic Party. Starting the weaning process required convincing Americans that public education was a failing. In 1983, the administration released a a nation-at-risk report aimed at generating support for radical reform and generating a panic that the public school system was failing the nation. The rhetoric in this report was hyperbolic. And to quote, they said, The educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation, our very future as a people. Oh, doesn't this all sound so familiar? Doesn't it? We've been having crises in Australian education since ever I can remember, but only in the public schools. I mean, I think that Kevin Donnelly has has dined out on this so many times, and his his job, I'm sure, for the Australian newspaper depends upon... Uh, the basics and how terrible the curriculum is and what we're not teaching our children and so on and so forth. Mm. Crisis after crisis, but only in the public sector. Indeed. Look, these apocalyptic claims were backed up by what one researcher called a golden treasury of spurious statistics. The media hyped the report to the point of stoking a panic about failing schools. Politicians across the political spectrum called for higher standards, better test results. Better test results, this sound familiar? And greater performance accountability from public schools. This has all all happened before. 
Conservatives simultaneously aimed for deep spending cuts at the same time. Sound familiar? In, in Australia at the moment, we have this whole debate about we need to improve education, but throwing more money at it's not going to be the answer. We need to cut the cost of education and improve it to compete on a world stage. Craziness. And then, of course, there's the demand for many, many more police. Which is a separate issue. Now, this guy is falling panic around public schools and the standards of accountability demanded, demands had actually attracted at the time bipartisan support. Neoliberal thinking had influence far beyond its ideological devotees. It tinged political moderates at the time. Self-identified liberals, that's in the American context, not the Australian, media people and think tank opinion makers. It permeated what became the dominant wing of the Democratic Party, what they called in those days the New Democrats. The jargon included choice, competition, efficiency and downsizing. They often competed with with Republicans for pro-free market credibility. In the 1990s, the escalating drive for tougher educational standards, better test scores and more accountability coincided with the declining commitment to racial desegregation. Public school integration on the rise since the mid-60s peaked in 1988. This is what a lot of people don't understand about the States. You go there, it's segregated society. <laughs> yeah. So desegregation peaked in 1988. It's getting that way in When 43.5% of all black students attended schools that were at least 50% white. Although research showed that the integrated schools narrowed the achievement gap between the minority and the majority without actually harming the white students, <laughs> the dedication of most government officials to proactive desegregation um, now in, in the United States has complete, almost completely dissipated. Decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court in 1991, 92 and 95 made it easier for school districts to abandon court-ordered plans for desegregation. Resegregation began immediately. In just 10 years, the percentage of black students attending schools that were at least 50% white dropped from 40, 43% down to 32%. By 2011, it was only 23%. And now, in the United States, and I've been there recently... Um, schools in, in the southern states of America are now almost, almost entirely resegregated. You have black schools, you have white schools. It's just that simple. Oh, by the way, I take this back. You have black schools, you have white schools, and you have Hispanic schools. The highly segregated schools attended by the low-income minority students were notoriously under-resourced compared to public schools attended by white, middle-class and wealthy students. Schools in poor urban neighbourhoods needed much greater support. Moreover, the achievement gap between minority and white students has been narrowing, and it still existed. Politicians might profess a commitment to reducing racial inequality, but most acted within neoliberal boundaries and with no interest in integration whatsoever. Glorification of the market, along with the vogue of standards and accountability, led to a new approach in the 90s. Governments could commit to improving education for low-income minority students with market tools while leaving the schools segregated. The mainstream political world seemed to slide easily from a sensible goal of racial integration to aiming for something like separate but improved for low-income minority students. Governments would hold public schools to high standards, monitor how well they were doing and help students in inadequate public schools move to better schools if they were smart enough. The primary measure of schools' quality would be student scores on standardised tests, despite the fact that most education scholars agree that scores on standardised tests reveal almost nothing about someone's education. This is the starting point of the 21st century market-based education system that we have today, which I'll be dealing with after a little bit more music.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We are charting the history of education privatisation movement in the United States. And in our little essay, we've got ourselves to the very beginning of the 21st century, when neoliberal innovations in education in the States policy took hold slowly at first. Reagan, of course, back in the day, proposed several voucher-type programs, but they all died in the 80s. He did, however, cut federal government portion of total public education spending from 12% to 6%. In 1994, Clinton signed the Improving America's School Act, which provided federal funding to states to create a new type of school, which was a publicly funded, privately operated, and here's the word, charter Charter school. school. I think it should be said, Robert, that there were a lot of people who uh, resisted both the vouchers and the charter schools. Here in Australia, in fact, we have a version of charter because uh, there is a thing called the resource standard and the private schools get uh, so much per student, etc. with this. But it was never called a voucher here, was it? Didn't, they didn't need to. No. They didn't need to. No. So, at the turn of this last century, the pro-market education reformers began to attract enough support and funding to build organisations and to operate like, or at least look like, a movement. The charter school movement and the voucher programs appealed to conservatives and centrists of all stripes, but very few progressives liked this. By 2010, Reform Think dominated the Nationals conversation on, on K-12 education. Now, with elite support, education reformers collected enough money to build an ed reform industry of organisations employing same-thinking researchers, programme designers, consultants, lobbyists, campaign organisers and, of course, media producers. Think tanks. A cadre of super-wealthy donors regularly gives millions of dollars to pro-ed reform candidates in state and local offices. They fund ballot initiatives around the country and pour hundreds of thousands of dollars into local school boards for people to be elected to them. The right-wing American Legislative Exchange Council, which drafts model legislation for conservative state lawmakers, has been an important ally for these what so-called ed reform movement operators. Some states have, have, have model education legislation pretty much off the shelf verbatim that is that, that, written by the American Legislative Exchange Council. Now, help also came with George W. Bush who advanced both charter schools and vouchers with his signature education policy back in the day of No Child Left Behind, back in 2002. Barack Obama, who opposed charter and school vouchers and charter schools, but very quickly became an advocate-in-chief for charter schools. Sent his children to one. In the depth of the Great Recession of 2009, Obama's Department of Education launched, launched an over $4 billion competitive grants program in what he called the Race to the Top. The rules stipulated that each competing state submit a public school reform plan taking into account a list of the DOE's pet policies. States that scored the highest on the point system would win millions of dollars for implement their plans. The criteria included not limiting the growth of charter schools. Public school supporters, all through this process, fiercely opposed these measures. Mm, yes, because they, div- they, they diverted resources from already stretched to the limited education budgets. But state governments were desperate for money from anywhere. Yes, we'll actually be continuing with this because we've got ourselves up to Barack Obama, but we haven't got to Betsy DeVos and Trump yet. I think we're going to have to say that again for next week. But you've been listening to the Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. But next we have Hume Central Secondary College, our great state school of the week. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Great State School of the Week is Hume Central College. It's up there in Broadmeadows. In fact, it's across three campuses. It's an amazing place. It, it's actually established in 2009. Um, there were three secondary, or there were three schools up there, and they were combined into one, given a superhead because they were seen to be struggling out there in Broadmeadows. Put in, put into one school and sorted out. They've got two junior campuses and a senior campus. It's an amazing place. Their, their, their logo, their college logo, I think really gets to the point. And often logos are all over the place, they're in Latin or not. This one isn't. This, this is straight to the point. 
Firstly, it says what it is. So the first word in the school logo is diversity. The second word is achievement. And the third word is success. Diversity, achievement, success. What you are, what you do, and what will happen. What you are, what you do, and what will happen. It's absolutely a fascinating place. Um, very student-centred. Very. Um, it's, not, it's not actually a huge school, which is always a nice thing when you've got schools like this. In terms of the kids that are turning up, <clears throat> 1% of the kids in this school come from the top quartile of the wealthy people in Australia. 6% come from the next quartile down, which means 93% of the kids are in the lowest half of socioeconomic brackets in Australia. And a full 74% of the kids come from the poorest families in Australia, as judged by, by parental income. The ICSIA value for this school is 852 mm-hmm. down from 1,000. Um, well... That's the diversity. And then it comes to what the school... Oh, yeah, by the way, 78% of the kids in this school come from a background language other than English. 78. Yeah, it's four kids in... Yeah, four, ki- four out of five kids. Eight out of ten kids come from a language background other than English. And they say there isn't a class society in Australia. <laughs> uh, they call it postcode fascism, don't they? Oh. Um, look... I don't care about that because Hume Central College, and I've, I've, I've worked with the teachers and the students at Hume Central College, it is such a happy place. Talk about achievement. They mm. know stuff. Mm. And, you know, when you, hear, when you hear something like 78% background language other than English, well, that might be one language or two languages or three languages. No, it's hundreds out there. It's just the kids, they come from all around the planet, <laughs> and they end up in Broadie, and they end up, in the Hume Central College, and their parents ain't got much money, and they get themselves an education. But it is a great blessing to have more than one language. Oh, I wish I did. Wish yes, I did that with yes. um, Look, compared to similar students, th- sometimes they do well, sometimes they, they don't do well. Their writing's great. Their grammar's all right. Uh, certainly by year nine, they, their grammar's absolutely fine. Um, reading's a struggle out there, but you would imagine that would be the case because of the ethnic or the mix of ethnic backgrounds and what the children are bringing to the school. But that's where I think their motto, diversity is what you bring, achievement's what you do, and success is what you end up with. I think it's an absolutely fascinating thing they're doing out there. How much does it cost? How much does it cost to educate these, I mean, uh, if you have to think about it, dramatically poorer than the average students. Well, it costs per student 18000 which is about right as far as I'm concerned. If you're going to educate those kids and make them proper, happy people that go out and get themselves a job and contribute to Australia, contribute to Australia for the rest of their lives, I reckon 18000 is a bargain. Certainly a lot less than what goes into the education of, of the young ladies at MLC. When I say ladies, that's the Methodist ladies. The Methodist ladies college, ladies. Um, yeah, well, they're dragging out of, dragging out of our economy per head 35,000 uh, out of broad meadows. It's only 18, so I reckon it's a bargain as far as I'm concerned. Um, in terms of the whole school itself, as I say, it's a really nice little school. It's a nice little school. Over three campuses, there's 1,200 kids. So that's about, that's about 500. 400 each. About, well, it's about 500 kids in the senior campus, mm. okay, and about 350 in both of the junior campuses. When you put it all together, it ends up. But when you think about a school with multiple campuses, I can tell you right now, if you're in year eight at, at the Hume Central Secondary College, um, you're, you're with your friends and you're with around about 70 other kids in your year level. So it's a, just a nice... Happy, and I can tell you right now, genuinely, it's a happy place for those kids to be. There's no question about that. So as a school, having looked at it from the inside and then looking at it from the outside, it's value for money and it solves problems. (laughs) A school like that definitely solves problems. Um, Some of of the campuses um, exist right next to the courthouse and the police station. It's all just central business district as far as Broadie is concerned. Quite frankly, I like Broadie. Um, I used to live there myself many years ago. It's a nice, it's actually a nice happy place once you, once you know your way around. And so a place like Hume Central School in the middle of a place like Broadmeadows doing such magnificent work with whoever turns up at the door. Because the one thing at private school, and there are, I've worked in private schools out there, so the one thing at private schools out there, oh, they turn them away. 
If they don't like the cut of your jib, the private schools will just turn you away. If they think you're going to be a problem, they'll turn you away. If they think that you won't be quite the right cultural and religious mix, they'll turn you away. If you're too tall, if you're too short, if you're not pretty enough, they can turn you away because that's what private schools do. That's what they can do, but not the Hume Central School because they have diversity. They take all comers. And they have achievement, which is what happens in there. And I've seen it happen. I've seen the dedication of the teachers. And then, of course, you have the result of that dedication and achievement. You have the success. So congratulations. Our great state school of the week this week is the Hume Central Secondary College. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. You've put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually, an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words it is actually. So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses. Refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a Positive relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the a and It's been a dense episode this week, and um, I think our analysis of what's going on in the United States is deeply, deeply interesting to us here in Australia, as it always is. Um, But before we go any further, I would really like to genuinely thank all those subscribers and all those friends of the Defence of Government Schools program who actually dug into their pockets, dug into their bank balances and actually gave, as Jean would say, gave sacrificially to keep 3CR on the air during Radiothon. If you are still thinking, of course, of donating to 3CR um, and indeed to support the Dogs Program, please, please do. Um, if you think, oh, I forgot, I forgot to, I forgot to donate. Oh, that's right, I missed Radiothon. Uh, it's okay, it's not actually too late, so you don't have to worry. You can just call us. I'll call the radio station on 94198377. That's 94198377. Um, and you can give whatever it is that you think that you can to support 3CR and the dogs. But 3CR will continue thanks to the generosity of you. Yes, you, listening there on the radio or in the car or indeed on the WWWs. You could be listening to us through 3CR on the website, 3cr.org.au or you could, of course, be contacting us through our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. And, of course, another thing, if you want to be a subscriber to 3CR, I know we've just had radio on, but if you're thinking, oh, now's the time I always update my subscription, you can. Again, by calling that same number, 94198377. But until next week, from here at the Dogs Program, it's been wonderful to have your company from Gene, myself and Dale. It's bye for now. I'm standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. 